Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. And welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes, sitting down with David Benner, the longtime director of media relations for the Indiana Pacers. And you can't do anything without someone taking notice, someone taking a photo of you yeah, as we record this. That's Wes. Good help's hard to find. <laughs> He's bored. Speaking of Wes Kaminsky, part of your crew, along with Chrissy Myers, in the media relations staff, as a direct relates to the Pacers and the team. Not as much the organization. 23rd season for you? 24. You're up to 24 now. Yes. So going back to my days as a sports writer, I was at the Star for 16 years, so I've been here for 24. When I covered the Pacers, I covered them for eight years for the Star. So eight plus 24 is 32. More than half of my life has been around the NBA. And covering and directly related to the Indiana Pacers. Yes. I love it. You're one of the local guys. There's a lot of them. Chrissy's the same way. Mm-hmm. Grew up Center Grove. Um, read where you were a manager of the basketball team. Oh, yeah. So you got, you got involved on an early age. Well, I wasn't good enough to make the team. I played football as a freshman at Center Grove and uh, sprained my ankle pretty bad and discovered I didn't like pain. So I gave up football. Uh, was you know tried out for basketball, didn't make it. So I became the manager, and I've kind of been involved in sports ever since that. So you know I started that when I was a sophomore in high school, um, but stuck with it. What was your big takeaway from from an experience like that? Because I think, and you you see things now behind the scenes as well. But for one. People have no idea how how much work you have to put in. Maybe you'd have to get there an hour before the team, stay a couple hours after. Yeah, you, it was grunt work. Um, probably the best grunt work of my life that I did was when I got out of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I got a job at the Star as a copy boy, which is like the lowest thing on the rung. But... It was very interesting because you got to visit all the different departments. And this is the old days of the newspapers before it became, you know, computerized with impagination and all that stuff. So you got to know the guys in the composing room, the press room, uh, the engraving room, the uh, people on the city desk, the people in sports, the people in back then drama slash entertainment. <laughs> you really got to know everybody in the building. And it was a 40-hour week job. It was very interesting. I got to see the newspaper business from the total perspective. And consequently, uh, you know, I, I saved my money and then after two and a half years decided to go to college and everybody said, you kind of have a little knack for writing. So I majored in journalism and English in college and worked at the Daily Student. And then when summer break had come or spring break, I'd come back and work in the Star Sports Department. Then when college was done... I was fortunate enough to get hired, so that started my sports writing career. Did you always seem to like writing? Did you enjoy English class, or that's something that grew on you? Because I know that's that's what it was for me. My SAT scores were a pretty good example that I should pursue something other than math. <laughs> 
Uh, Although my, that's involved in your everyday life with stats and now in analytics. Yeah, well, I kind of let uh, <laughs> I kind of let Wes and Chrissy handle all the numbers stuff because my numbers are not real good. And but anyway, yeah, my English, my verbal scores were good, and I I always had a knack to write, and I always enjoyed writing. I I tell people I couldn't. I, I always had I couldn't sit down and recite what verbs, nouns, adjectives, compound sentences were, but I could put sentences, paragraphs together, like it was nothing. And I can still do that. Thank goodness. How big of a help was it to have your older brother Bill already in that field, already going down that track? It it helped, but you know I like to think that yeah, having him in the sports department. I just mean as far as knowing what that job entails, yeah, those sorts of things. Some, somewhat. Okay. Um, you know, in this case, I'm glad nepotism was alive and well at the Indianapolis Star back then. But the funny thing is, and I tell people this all the time, when I would work at the Star during the summers or over spring break, and Bill would be in but what they called the slot, which is laying out the paper and doing all that stuff, it was like <clears throat> working for Bob Knight. Oh. Uh, Bill was... Bill was a perfectionist, and he would get on your butt a little bit if you didn't do things the right way. So that was, and it didn't matter that I was his brother, he played no favorites. So I learned the hard way um, about the basics of journalism through that experience. And then when I got hired, you know, I didn't write. I was a desk guy, and, you know, you had to wait your turn. And I did, and I covered a lot of different things, Uh and actually enjoyed them all covered. I always tell people I covered the Ben Davis sectional in basketball, and it was always a test of skill to be able to keep accurate notes with people stomping on those temporary bleachers yeah. while you're trying to you know cover a game. But it, it was great. It was great fun, it, and it served as a great background. And you know, like I said, I've been I've been fortunate to be around sports my entire life. You moved into college sports, is that right? And then and then to the Pacers beat. No, I got like I said, I just covered all kinds of different things. I covered IU soccer. I covered uh, I covered the Madison Regatta. Um, the and a quick great story about that. John, the late John Banch, who was the assistant sports editor at the time, one time says to me, asked me, David Benner, what happens if a boat gets a hole in it? And I said, Well, it sinks. He goes, You're covering the Madison Regatta. <laughs> so that's how I got that assignment. Um, but covered a lot of high, I covered high school football, high school basketball. I was like a filling guy, um, you know, got to cover some sim estates and things like that. But, um, at one point when the Colts came, Dave Overpeck, who had been covering the Pacers was going to switch over to do the Colts. And so that opened that up and I started covering the Pacers in 1983, which was the first year of the Simons bought the team. So I did that for eight years at the end of the eight years, I covered Notre Dame football for three. And some Notre Dame basketball, because they were good back then. They had LaFonso Ellis and Monty Williams. They had, and John McLeod was the coach. But my last year at the newspaper, um, I covered Notre Dame football in the fall, in which they had uh, a really good team Rick Meyer, Jerome Bettis, Reggie Brooks, uh, Aaron Taylor, and they came pretty close to winning the national championship that year then in the winter they put me on the IU beat IU basketball which was interesting it was Damon Bailey's senior year and again they had a really good team 
And I covered that like, well, I'm not, this isn't going to be permanent, you know, because I'm going to go back to covering Notre Dame. But then I found out like during the middle of the year that probably the next year I was going to be covering IU football and basketball. And my initial thing was, because uh, covering Notre Dame was great. Notre Dame football is like one of the best things ever. The Back then it was a different time. Players were very accessible. Lou Holtz every Tuesday would come in and speak for, or not speak, but do a press conference for an hour. Um, and it was even, it made the drive to South Bend worth it uh, to cover. I was going to say that had to be the biggest downside. That was the, the biggest, that was the biggest downside. Uh, but having, having said that, it was still fun. The teams were good. The guys were great. Uh, I learned a lot from John Heisler, who was the SID then now, now, or then now he's an assistant athletic director, but John was a, as it turns out, John turned out to be a bit of a mentor. Um, but I, and I covered IU basketball that winter and then Dale Ratterman, who was the media relations guy before me with the Pacers got bumped up to a, uh, he was like the VP of marketing or whatever. And they'd actually approached me before that football season about doing this. And I said, can you give me a year? I said, because I want I kind of want to do this. This will be kind of fun and interesting. And Dale said, yeah, that's okay. And that was before they required a PR person to travel full time. So Dale didn't, you know, Dale didn't have to do that on top of his other job. So I guess I lucked out in that respect. By the way, I read this and I was like, wow, talk about leverage saying, nah, you can wait on me for a year. Well, I, and <laughs> I like I, that. Yeah. And I, to this day, I don't know how they thought I could do this, uh, but they did. And at the end of the year, when I got done with IU basketball, I was like going, boy, I don't know. You know, I had good beats. You know, I was loving it. Um, but I talked to Dale and I talked to Donnie and they finally convinced me at the time I was, uh, I was single late thirties figured what the heck, you know, I'll go ahead and make the change. You know, I grew up with the Pacers, you know, covered them for eight years, enjoyed dealing with Donnie and Herb. Um, and the players, I mean, the teams weren't very good back then, but the players were always good to deal with. And I thought, well, yeah, we'll see what happens, even though I knew absolutely nothing about PR or media relations or anything like that. So I guess you can say the rest is, you know, 24 years of history right now. What was the biggest learning curve, having no experience in that field? The biggest learning curve initially was, A, uh, I didn't know how to tie a tie, and I had to learn how to tie a tie. Upgrade the wardrobe a little I had to upgrade the wardrobe. Because now you wear suits every game night. Uh, yeah, and then I had to wear – well, back then they the dress code for the Pacers was a shirt and tie every day. Every day? Every day. And I was ironing my own clothes, ironing my own <laughs> shirts, uh, which was very weird. And I also had to learn how to – you know, I had a couple people under me, so I had to learn how to be a manager, and I also had to learn how to deal with the budget. Now, I'm coming from a sports writing world where, A, ties were non-existent. You know, you were kind of, you did your own thing. And the only budget you worried about was how you could sneak around on your travel expenses. Yeah. So that was that was the big adjustment um, at, at the time was were those particular things. But once you got into the actual season and I learned what was required – it became it became pretty simple because it, and I knew I knew what pro athletes were like and I knew what pro basketball players were like and 
in the transition from writing to covering the team, I'd at least, you know, I, I had a relationship with Reggie Miller and I had had a relationship with Rick Smith. So it's not like I went in and none of these guys knew who I was. Mm-hmm. So that helped. So that even though there was a three year gap, it was, uh, it was a good transition to make at the time on the dress. Wouldn't it be nice to see, I think a more relaxed, setting if you will the coaches just in polos and slacks I kind of like like right now we have the Maui tournament going on now not to the extreme of Mike Bray where he's wearing shorts and tall socks and a t-shirt but it's basketball it's fun I don't know I kind of like the all-star atmosphere where it's just a polo and dress pants well you know baseball managers wear uniforms which I think is kind of weird it is uh you know college coaches wear whatever you know, the sponsor dictates as far as a a hoodie or a polo or a sweatshirt or whatever. I think the coaches would like it, but I guess that they're in the, summer league's another good example. Summer of league, that. yeah, you can kick back and relax. But I guess in the NBA, they want the coaches to look professional um, and carry that air about them. They've relaxed it a little bit. They don't have to wear ties if they don't want to. But for the most part, um, they all go coat and tie. You mentioned how one of your first years was with Herb Simon. Has he been the same over the years as far as his ownership style, very hands-off and enabling of those that he hires? Yes, and he's been he's been great. And I'm not saying it because he's my boss, my ultimate boss. I have many bosses. But Herb has always been, I think at first, you know, he did this thing out of civic pride. And then in the late 80s and early 90s when the team started to have a little success and they got into the playoffs and then that translated later when Larry Brown became coach and you had even more success I think he found out what everybody else found out that winning can be quite addictive um, no matter what the level whether it's the first round of the playoffs one game or you know extending Boston to five games in that that series which is my last year covering the team as he went on through the course of the thing where they started reaching conference finals, I think owners get a kick out of something that they don't get in everyday business life. And I think Herb really enjoyed that part of it. But and it's strange that in all these years, I don't really, I've never seen him change. He's, he's just a, he's a good guy. He's very down to earth. He is hands off. He trusts the people to run the basketball department to do their jobs. Um, and I think being a, a hands-off owner, so does, yeah, do, does he get asked questions, draft night, free agency, that type of thing? Sure. But ultimately, he defers to the people he put in charge. And that seems like what a great leadership style. It's a, it's a tremendous leadership style, and I think it's important in professional sports. Yes, the owner pays the bills, or as we like to say, it's his ball and bat. But eventually – you you need to trust the people who know that particular business uh, to do so. And, I mean, I'll go back a ways again when I was a writer. The Pacers didn't really have a basketball person running the show. And Wayne Embry was a consultant, but he was not a full-time general manager, president, or anything like that. And I wrote a column saying that, you know, the Pacers should hire Donnie Walsh to run the basketball side of it. Here's a guy who's an attorney. Here's a guy who's been a head coach. He's been an assistant coach, and he was an assistant coach with the Pacers at the time. And, you know, eventually Donnie got hired, so I tease him to this day that I helped him get started, that I was the one responsible. In truth, it was Billy Cunningham who called Herb Simon saying, hey, you gotta call, you got to hire this guy. 
But you push for it but publicly. I'm still, but I'm still taking credit. Sure. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. I like it. Uh, when, over the years, obviously, there's new coaches, new coaching staffs. Do you have a system now? Like when a new coach comes in, you have 20 questions you go in to ask them about how do you like to handle this? When we travel, how yeah. would you prefer to do this? And to try to gauge um, how they like to do things because everyone, I think all of us really, are very routine in what we try to do. You always go in and sit down with them and say, all right, how do you like to do things? Here's what we've done in the past. What are you comfortable with? Um, and, you know, I, I've been <laughs> I've been blessed. All the coaches over the years have been very cooperative. Um, and I think they... I think they respect my experience a little bit and I know that I'm never going to put them in a situation that they shouldn't be in or anything like that. I mean, like the NBA has some strict guidelines. I mean, coaches have to be available after every practice. They have to be available pregame. They have to be available postgame. You know, the accessibility of this league is second to none, I believe, uh, Mm -hmm. in that respect. But they've all been really good. They've all been extremely cooperative um very diverse per- personalities along the way from um <laughs> i mean Larry Brown i mean holy mackerel Larry Bird you know Isaiah Carlisle you know Jim O'Brien there's just been a lot of varied person Frank Vogel and now Nate i mean there's a lot of varied personalities in there and you learn to adjust to their personalities and and their style and things like that and sometimes if something could say you just go in and you suggest hey what do you think about this or what do you think about that and one of the things i got to believe you do is maybe before a pregame media session if there's something in the news or something like that that he should be made aware of or, or in this case nate mcmillan is obviously going to be asked and maybe he's been watching film for three hours yeah you're gonna touch him hey you're gonna be asked about this if, be, get it here's a heads up if there's a topic and i do that with the players too I mean, if there's a topic that might come up, the you know, be prepared for. Do I tell them what to say? No. If they ask for suggestions, yeah, I'll provide it. And then occasionally we have players who will come in and say, "Hey, what do I say about this, or what do I say about that?" And I'll sit there. Okay, here's a guy. Here's guidelines. You know, um, I don't believe in giving them verbatim things that they're supposed to say. Uh, Run our test was probably the exception, um, but. <laughs> It's yeah, you, you want to keep them on their toes, uh, and I. It's you know, you get on Twitter and you follow Twitter just to see what the topic of the day may be, mm-hmm. and if that might affect you or your coach or your players. That's a whole different subject. I do want to get into that, but first, as as far as the players go in their development, I know you. I think it's league mandated. They have media training um, mm-hmm. before each season. But I think Lance is a good example. Coming in, he was not a good interview. You go there, you might get two words out of him or a sense that really doesn't make sense. And now you go to him and he offers not only interesting thoughts, but fun thoughts a lot of the times. What is your role, Chrissy, Wes's role in the development of guys, especially now when they're 19, 20, 21? Well, you just you tell them, like with draft picks when they come in, I always tell them, I don't know what, it was like for you at your college. I said, but here in the NBA, these are the things that are pretty much required. You may get asked every day to speak. Mm -hmm. And 
some days you may go two weeks without being asked to speak. By the way, I think that's where you do a good job, too. If, like, in years past, for example, if Paul George had talked six days in a row and they hadn't played for two days, you'd be like, hey, can we – are we good, media, if, if yeah. we don't – if we give Paul Sunday off, and most of the time, yeah, that's totally you, fine. You wanna, he talks enough. You want, you want to give him a, a break every once in a while just because, hey, Paul was extremely cooperative, mm-hmm. as you know. And you want to kind of give them a little bit of a a break, especially when you're again, you talk after shoot around, you talk after a game, you talk after a practice. So that's twice in one day, and once another day, almost seven days a week. At some point, you know what else can you possibly say? But yeah. going back, I mean, with with the rookies, you just tell them if you ever have any issues or you want to know how to handle something, come to us. That's what we're here for. We've been around a long time. Don't hesitate. Yeah, don't hesitate. And they're, by and large, pretty good. Lance, you know, Lance was interesting uh, his first year because he, you know, he wasn't comfortable with the media, and I understood that. But you you end up developing a trust with these guys that, you know, I'm not going to put you in a bad spot. You know, I don't want to put you in a bad spot. Um Sometimes people will say, hey, I'm coming in and do a story on such and such. All right. Well, he wants to know what the story's about. Because I don't want somebody coming in here and blindsiding them with something that happened when they were 17 years old. Sure. That has absolutely nothing to do with us. So you, you do that. I mean, you try to do a little homework with the media. And some media will say, well, I don't really want to divulge. I said, well, until you do, then we're not going to set this up. Because you have to you have to protect the players. I'm surprised. There's media... Because uh, there, may- there's not been a lot. There's been a couple down the road who said, well, I really don't want to discuss that. And I said, well, sorry. Because a lot of times I prefer that so they understand what angle you're coming from right. with a question. Right, right. And it's, like I said, hasn't happened often, but it does happen every once in a while. And, again, I don't want them blindsided. So, For those who may not know, media relations in general, your role is kind of be the middleman between the team – whether it's the president, the coach, the players, and then us on the media side. It might be helping TV um, go live before a game. What other day-to-day responsibilities might you have? Here's a day off when we're recording this um, from a basketball standpoint. Well, I mean, and Wes does the game notes. Uh, Chrissy handles a lot of the day-to-day grunt work. I just hang out. (laughs) guess you can do (laughs) that after 24 years. No, no, they won't deny it either. No, I – I mean, I approve all credential requests. That's I mean, it. I do the seating charts for the games. Um, I will go to players before practice with request and say, hey, here's a request for such and such. Will you do this? And they can say yes, no, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they might say, should I do this? And I will say, yeah. That's smart yeah, on their part. Yeah you, yeah, you probably should do this one. And there's other times where you say, you know, like, for example, Victor is getting inundated right now. So – we've come to a point where you got to cut cut him back a little bit you know cut him some slack uh he's been playing well the team's 10 and 8 uh he's obviously got the indiana university tie here uh he's he's a very engaging person and not in his nature to say no so sometimes that's up to me and he probably has different kinds of requests because he has this EP out. And yeah. So he might get music stations he, and others he coming does, He does get that, but most of it is, um, 
you know, unfortunately for you, Scott, uh, a lot of it, you know, we want to do a 20-minute podcast with Victor Oladipo. Well, we can't – players can't do podcasts all the time. They, in my world, they can't do them at all until – in the offseason, I have no problem with it. And it's just because once they do one, there's 18 others that come across wanting to do these things, and there's not enough time, especially since there's so much availability for them on a regular mm-hmm. basis. So you can, you, you kind of draw you, you kind of draw a little line there, but again, you know, I I'll go to them, ask them if they want it, and then after practice, I if they are requested by the media, I make sure that they stop and go do the media. And it's always a running gag with many of them. Especially George Hill in years past. George Hill, who I threatened to break his legs during the conference finals. He would, like, hide in closets, take back routes. I always told George, I said, I got one wife at home. I don't need another wife here. Uh, But we we, we had a great relationship. And George would – I think that was part of the relationship was George would try to see how far he could push my buttons. And a couple times he pushed them pretty far. But that said – to this day we remain friends and you know i i like george and there are some guys who aren't comfortable doing it and if they're not comfortable doing it you understand that and try to help them but the nba does a good job from the time that they come in letting them know look this is a requirement this is something you got to do it starts with the rookie transition you program. set that expectation for yeah. them from day one yeah. yeah and so that that helps and i'll and you know i also tell them i said if there's again if you ever have any issues with anybody or some come to me. A couple times, somebody might say, "Hey, so and so wrote this about me. I don't like it." I said, "Well, did you see the article?" Well, no. My girlfriend or my wife or my buddy told me. Blah, blah, blah. I said, "Well, until you see the article, then we'll talk." Or they sent you the headline or a quote yeah, or a the, paragraph, yeah. and it's like, "No, no, no. Read through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Then evaluate it." Or you know, various sound bites or something like that, and you you know, a player might get ticked off at a writer and you just tell the player, look, it does you no good to get in an adversarial relationship because then the writer wins. I said, I know for a fact, cause I was, you know, I, I did that. If I could, if I could push a button, which I did with Chuck person once, um, then I realized, well, this makes for pretty good copy. If he's going to be you know pissed off at me, I mean, this, this works a little bit. You don't like it, but on the other hand, it works. And, and I also tell them, I said, you know, you got to remember something. Media people have bigger egos than you guys. I said, they have the largest egos of anybody I've ever come across. I said, again, I know I was one. And if they can put themselves at the forefront of the story where they one up you, they win. I said, you don't want them to win. How has the climate, speaking of that, the climate changed with media nowadays where, for one, there's so many different stories churned out. There might be a website uh, writer, um, writing 10 stories a day, so you're not going to get in-depth. They might miss something, um, aggregation, and then, of course, the hot takes, as you brought up. Yeah, that's that's the hard part these days is because with Twitter, somebody will take one line from a quote from a story or one line from an interview and blow it out of proportion to something else. So that is that's hard. I, it, it's also changed in the – it's very much a <clears> – <throat> a look at me media today as opposed to look at my look at my work um and i tease Stephen a smith whenever i see him 
he was a beat guy back when I was a beat guy. And I tease him. I says, you know, I got to hand it to you. I said, I don't know. You're pulling down millions of dollars mm-hmm. for getting on TV and screaming. You know, basically, look at me. Essentially, yeah. And that's that's one of the things that's happened in the media world today is it's become more of a more of a I go back to the ego thing. It's about it's about me. It's about I uh, my what I think, not what I know. What I think, and I tell I tell media people I don't mind you having an opinion. I just want you to have an educated opinion. Um, and you know, along those lines, you go back to. I always laugh at draft time or trade time. <laughs> yes. And this knee-jerk reaction to, oh, what a horrible draft, or oh, what a horrible trade. I said, you know, the rule of thumb is wait two years. You can't grade a draft. You can't judge a trade until at least two years after the fact. But somebody's bosses. Yeah, they want you. They, they want. They want. They want them to do it. Instant I, reaction. I, I, I get that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, somebody pointed out that going once we traded Paul, that the Pacers were accepting mediocrity, and I had to point out how how do we accept mediocrity? I said we, you know, we made the playoffs last year. We didn't have the team we we thought we would be better, but we made the playoffs two years ago. We played Toronto in the playoffs, which was a two seed. We were nearly seven, won, nearly, the whole thing nearly in seven won games. it. Three years ago, almost made the playoffs. Went down to the last day. We didn't have Paul for almost the entire season. Four years ago, Eastern Conference Finals. Five years ago, Eastern Conference Finals. And in the last seven years, um, two teams have made the Eastern Conference Finals in those years. It's Cleveland and Miami. What do they have in common? LeBron. LeBron James. There are two other teams who have made the Eastern Conference Finals twice in the last seven years. The Boston Celtics and us. And, of course, you know, I cater this to my needs. Don't let facts get in the way. No. And this this is factual. I said, what team's been in the Eastern Conference Finals more than any other since 1994? The Pacers. How are we accepting mediocrity? I think the stat that's great going back to last year has been in the playoffs 22 of the last 27 years. Yeah, something like that. And it, and and the other thing the the media doesn't always get is how hard it is to win. One game. It's hard to, and you get in the playoffs it's hard to win a game, it's hard to win a series, it's hard to win another series and so forth and so on. And I always say this, back when I covered the team, I thought I knew everything that was going on. Then I come and work for the team and I didn't know anything. That's one of my biggest gripes. Is some of the loudest voices are the ones that won't be at practice today. Yeah, that probably haven't shown up to a game. Yeah, and that's that's the nature of the beast. But but yet they know exactly the, the chemistry within the locker room. Like I, I, that's the thing. I just I can't stand for. There's no way you have any idea. No, and you have no, to be there. Nobody does. And even as much as you're around, or as much as you know, Cliff Brown is around, mm-hmm. um, as much as you know Jeremiah and Chris are around. They don't know a lot. It's, I know that like having a, been on the other side with the fever. Yeah, it's like you know when you when you're around it every day, and you interact with these guys on a on a regular basis. You 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 see things, you hear things, you you just go. Those on the outside don't know. They just you know the, the team that went to the 2000 finals. 
I don't know how hard of a season that was. That was a hard season. And, you know, Travis Best making that three-pointer in the corner, if he misses that shot, that team sucked. He didn't miss it. We won't, We go on and go to the finals. We win. But there were a lot of things going on. You know, Mark Jackson was trying to get another contract. Rick was – feet were killing him. He was probably going to retire. There was just a lot of stuff behind the scenes that the media had no clue about. And – you get to the NBA Finals and you just and you stop and take a look back after you lost in six games. You talk, stop and took a look back and go, boy, how did we get this far? How did this team get that? And it was a good team. Uh, there were other teams that probably should have been in the Finals before that one. But that was an interesting thing that, you know, a bounce of luck and, you know, a lot of variables entered into it. And, hey, you made the NBA Finals. And, you know, I mean, you lost in six, but still you made it somehow. <laughs> Contributing to the NBA's growth is NBA Twitter. There's a lot of sourcing in the transaction business. I don't like it as much, but fans truly enjoy the transactions, the what-ifs, and I think it gives them hope more than they do the present day. The Pacers could have won four in a row, but if there's a rumor out there that they're looking into trading for a player, they're way more interested in that. How has that and and the sourcing of everything impacted your role as the director of media relations well i mean so much of it's not factual and you can't respond to everything so you don't occasionally you will call somebody and go look and then you're not even close so why bother uh you know and you get around draft time and free agent time and the trade deadline and all this stuff gets thrown out there some of it you know, there might be some truth to it because these teams, It's here's the difference. Teams all talk. Yeah, you know, Kevin Pritchard will be on the phone. Chad Buchanan will be on the phone. They'll talk. So they're talking to other teams. Uh, other teams, to get leverage, will say, hey, the Pacers just called me about such and such right. with the agent. The agents talk amongst themselves. The agents use the media. I mean, Adrian Wojciechowski is a great example of that. I mean, he's tapped into the agents. He's tapped into the front offices. And I'm sure there's a lot of, before you ever get to a trade, there's an enormous amount of trading of information. You know, people say, well, how, does, how does that get out? How does it, well, agents talk. Players talk. Agents won't let a, agents are not going to leave a player in the dark about you know, a possible trade or about possible free agency without telling the player. Or they'll soon be in the dark with the or player. Or they'll soon be out they'll soon be out of a job with the player. So they said yeah. so they talk. Everybody talks and everybody likes to have their voice heard and be known as, you know, the expert who had this first or that type of thing. But there are no secrets anymore. And so that's that's the big thing. And what goes with that is while there are no secrets, there's also a lot of uh, non-factual information that gets floated out just because somebody hears from somebody who heard from somebody else who heard from somebody else. I mean, there's a lot of that telephone line stuff. And so you got two-thirds of the story, right? But you missed an important yeah, fact. Or... A lot of times, not even two-thirds. Uh, but, and you know, and they'll sit there, you know, I'll get the calls. Well, is it true that so-and-so offered such-and-such? Such? No, I'm not going to comment on that. I don't, you know, you know this, I don't comment on anything. Because I like my job and I'm nearing retirement, so I don't want to lose this. That said, you know, unless you know, and I'll go to Larry at the time or Kevin now, and I'll say, "Do we do we even respond to this?" Blah blah blah, and they'll just think, "No, you know, just no." We yeah, the stance here is, at least in my experience, in what seven we don't eight years, on we don't comment on rumors. 
And, you know, Donnie Walsh told me a long time ago, he said, whether it was a trade or free agent or whatever, Donnie says, always remember there are lawyers involved. And until the thing is signed on the dotted line, it, it hasn't happened. <laughs> and it, there's a lot of truth to that because there's a, you know, you make a trade and it's all pretty much verified. But until you get on the trade call with the league and go through the contracts and until the players pass the physical. Then they get, yeah, they have to travel here until they pass, pass, the physical. pass the physical. There is no trade. And that's why, you know, we're always, again, we're not reluctant. We just don't do it. We just don't confirm anything, even though, you know, probably many of the times it, it, it is happening. It's going to happen, but we're not talking about it. Who are some of the more fun personalities, players, coaches that you enjoyed over the years? Would have cigars with, whatever it may be. You obviously have the infamous Reggie Miller story, where yeah. where you shared Reggie, the Pepsi and yelled at him before every game. Yeah, Reggie. I mean, Reggie was Reggie was interesting. Um, he got to the point where he was. I mean, he was big time, and you know, anybody that dealt with him in the media knew that if you hesitate on a question, he was out of there. You know, if you if, unless you came up with something right right away, he would go, "Thanks, guys," and be gone. Huh. Um, that said, I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, Dale Davis, I absolutely is a great guy. Sam Perkins, Travis Best. By the way, on Dale, have you had a chance to see his kid play around here? I have uh, not yet. I have not seen him, but last night he went for 33-9. and nine, Not bad. Uh, as a junior, and Archie Miller was in the audience. So, uh, but Dale was, Dale was a, a genuinely good person whose persona on the court was nothing like his persona off the court. But Dale, Travis, Sam, I, you know, Scott, there's there's so many. I can't, uh, I tell people this all the time, there's only three guys, and I won't name them, three guys who I could not stand in my 24 years, which is pretty good. That's really good, yeah. And this group right now may be the best group of all. Uh, there's a whole different vibe to this group. And, you know, and people have – you know, people have some animosity f- toward uh, Paul, but Paul was great for me, with me, the whole bit. And you know, there are some guys who you know are difficult when it comes to the media thing. You know, I remember Monte. Uh, you know, was not the most media friendly guy. He'd do it, but you could he'd tell do, he just did it. not he'd enjoy he's it. Not, he's not comfortable, and he'd always say, "Well, I got nothing to say." I said, "Well, if you got nothing to say, then say nothing," which. You know, all they're looking for, Monte, is just a quick soundbite, and then you're, you're out of here in like two minutes. One of the things I, I feel like would be it's great for them to know and be aware of is if you don't like the question, answer your own question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that's that's, that's true one too. of the great secrets. Um, John Calipari, to his credit, he knows when he's interviewed at halftime of a game, millions are watching, and that's a platform to him to speak to recruits or his audience. And I think as much as I don't like him, I think he does a great job doing that. It's yeah, and it's like I said. I I don't care what you say to the media. In most cases, I just want you to talk to the media. You know, it's like two minutes out of your life, unless it's you know you're a key player. Like Paul would sit in the sit at his locker after game and talk for a long time. You'd you'd have to cut him out. Yeah, eventually I to help him out a little bit. Well, and then people come in late and they start asking the same questions because they're going to the other locker room, and it's like, well, no, I'm not. He he's here. You want to talk to him? He's here, and that's why that's why I can never diss on Paul because 
He stayed there and answered the questions after games. Um, and Ron Artest, strangely enough, is one of my all-time favorite guys. The, the guys that had the worst reputations, for whatever reason, I had great relationships with. Mm-hmm. Steven Jackson. Steven Jackson. Jamal yep. Tinsley, David Harrison. But Ron, Ron was, uh, Ron was, he, Ron. Ron was Ron. But he did, I don't know if you remember this, he did a rap album mm-hmm. back in the day. And came out and talked about it. You know, I think the team was at Minnesota at the time when he first mentioned it and then kind of indicated he wanted to take some time off to promote said rap album. Uh, so we can they, we come home. The next game of all, team, of all teams to be playing is the Knicks. And so I tell Ron, I said, okay, Ron, here's what you're going to get asked. Uh, here's how you answer it. So this is like 10 minutes of this. You got it, Ron? You repeat after me, Ron. You got it? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Dave. I got it. I got it. So he walks across the locker room, and in the 30 seconds it took from me speaking to him to get to the other side of the locker room, the media starts crowding around him and asking him about all this stuff, and the stream of consciousness comes pouring out that I haven't heard. Uh-oh. And typical Ron, at the end of it, he gets done. He looks at me. He goes, "How'd I do, Dave?" I says, uh, "Not very bleeping good, Ron." And he was, and he had this hurt look on his face. I said, "Did you not listen to everything that we talked about before you went over and talked to him?" He goes, "Well, yeah, yeah, but then next thing you know, I, I, I got caught up in the moment." <laughs> I said, "Well, you got caught up in the moment, but you, I said you sounded bad." And he did an interview one time with ESPN, the magazine, that. Um, I can't remember the. I actually, I can't remember what the gist of the cover story was. He's like the meanest man in the NBA or something like that. But they, the writer asked him if there was anybody in the NBA that he feared, and Ron goes, "Yeah, I fear Dave," and points to me. And the writer goes, "No, no, no. Seriously, is there anybody in the NBA that you fear?" He goes, "Yeah, it's Dave." He says he jumps on my butt all the time, <laughs> and I just I started laughing because. Um, Ron was a guy that you had to you had to corral every once in a while, but he I liked him. Uh, I still stay in touch with him to this day, and he will come back here in the summer every once in a while, and we'll get together and have lunch. And I just and I, he's also turned his life around in many different respects. He's an assistant coach for a G League team now, and I'm. I'm happy for him. I, I just I liked him. It's unfortunate what happened, but that said, I always had a really good relationship with him. So yeah, Ron's Ron's up there. David, when a national broadcast occurs, ESPN, TNT, how does that change uh, what you have to do? What do you need to provide them before those games? Yeah, it's it's not too drastic. Um, they always want an individual one-on-one interview after shoot around with a player. One guy. Yeah, they always want uh, to speak to the coach for a few minutes pregame. They used to want to walk off guest at halftime, but that's kind of gone by the wayside. And, you know, you got to stop the coach if you're if it's a road game at the end of the first quarter to do an interview with the sideline person. Or, would you like to see that in? Because I think most of us would. You don't get anything out of it. A coach isn't going to offer anything up after the first quarter. No, you don't. You really don't get anything out of it. But that's something that, you know, it's called on. They're interviewing managers and in dugouts now, no. for crying out loud. But... They no, the national TV thing is actually pretty simple. Um, it gets a little more back in the day when we were reaching the conference finals. It becomes more demanding because there's just more 
um, more requests and things like that. And they've taken it to another level where sometimes they want to mic a player during a game. You know, they'll put a mic on his uniform. That That's something that you got to – it's not difficult, but you go and you got to get the uniform and get it, to get it mic'd. And then if the player's uncomfortable with it, um, you know, they may come to you, me and say, hey, I can't wear this thing. I just, you know, I just, it feels weird. One thing about that, do you or does anyone within your organization or the league have to approve something before they air it? Say they go to a huddle of Nate McMillan. Is anyone approving oh, yeah. that? Yeah, there's a, somebody from the league always is, is okay. here for a national TV game. They're in the truck. They listen to everything. So nothing goes on the air uh, with a coach or a mic player that isn't pre-approved by the league. And that said, once that stuff once the game is over, I think almost everything gets destroyed, except okay. the stuff that's been on air. I think I'm not sure, but yeah, because I mean, if that stuff is in some archive somewhere, who knows? You who know, knows who gets a hold who, of it? Yeah, and who sends knows it who to gets a hold of it and makes and makes a story out of it? So I think that they end up getting rid of most, with the exception of the stuff that aired or the stuff that's innocent. You know, the no, we didn't air this, but this is pretty innocent. We're not going to get rid of that. One of the great things you do annually is rookie initiation, if you will. You and Mark Boyle request a box of cigars, right? We from, don't go ahead now. We, we've cut back on the no we, more. We cut back. No, we do it. We cut back on the box. Ah, yeah, uh, <laughs> because if so it becomes a high draft pick, we may reconsider. But now we just say, hey, just get us a couple cigars and we'll be fine. Somewhere on somewhere T. on T. the road. Leaf's doing all right. Somewhere on the road. T- yeah, but. I, you know, a I guy got, like Edmund Sumner, I get Edmund, that. You know, we're not going to tap him or EK. You know, TJ's doing all right, but at the same time, I'm not going to sit there and really, you know, bust their chops on it and um, just yeah, get us a couple. We'll be good. We'll be fine. Still to this day, one guy that ignored you, right? Said yep. no. Yep, one guy. Do we want to say nah. who it is? Okay, nah. he's moved on. <laughs> he's not even in the league. <laughs> no, that didn't we, last. We long. won't. We won't diss him. One cool thing I think you've done over the last couple of years is when you've had an injured player, you make him an intern. Paul George first, now Glenn <laughs> Robinson the third. Do you actually uh, have them do anything, or is that more just uh, it's a ceremony? It's a ceremonial type thing. Okay, and we did it with Paul. We kind of did it as a as a joke, uh, just because what they were doing was the seat beside me is protected by the press table. So when Paul would come up, they didn't want him on the end of the bench or behind the bench where somebody could possibly – there's more of a barrier mm-hmm. to them potentially getting hurt by a player jumping over to save a loose ball or something like that. So that was a good place for Paul to sit because he could you know, keep his leg out of harm's way. And there's also you know, there's VIP people – people sitting there and there's a security guy there so it, it just worked out that way so we just decided oh we're gonna make him an honorary intern so we gave him a credential the whole nine yards and he had a he had fun with it uh and so then when glenn got hurt we just figured that well shoot might as well make him an intern too uh so i prefer not to have them uh, yes. i prefer that they keep their keep themselves away from me uh but it's just something to kind of have fun with and make light of and I, you know, that's one of the things you try to do in the day-to-day job is make it a little bit, make it fun. Um, it's basketball. It's ba- it's like, ba- it, yeah, that's it's, the thing I think it's basketball. sometimes gets lost. It's basketball. And, you know, for Glenn, you know, what happened to him was, like, really tough because he's such a good good guy. And, you know, we were expecting a lot out of him for that injury to happen him be out so long. 
all right, you're, you're going to come out and you're going to watch, which is going to suck because you're not playing. But, all right, let's make it fun. If you're going to watch, let's make it fun. So, And I blamed him for the New Orleans loss because at halftime we were playing really well enough, 14 points. He went back to ice. And, of course, we blew the lead and lost the game. And so I told him that's all your fault now. So, Last thing, and maybe this is more for me, less for the audience. What would you like to see more of? What is underserved when it comes to whether it's NBA coverage, Pacer coverage, or sports in general? My, my thing is, and it's just because it seems like time in the rush to put content out, is, is spending a couple days, let's say, on a feature store and making a couple extra calls to get to know a player better. Yeah, I think more people would like to get to know the players better. But, in, I mean, in today's media world, it's, like, really hard just because it seems like there's time constraints. I mean, it's like after practice today, we stop guys, but, you know, once they get done with us, they got to go and do weights. Or they may have to go in and get treatment. Or they may have an appearance, or there may be a mandatory league meeting. It seems like their time is so compressed now, as opposed to what it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Um, I'd like to see that. I I think I'd also like to see. Um, I don't expect equal treatment, uh, but I'd like to see fair treatment. Uh, and by that, I mean. Not everything that we do is newsworthy on a daily basis, but sometimes we do some things, whether it's a you know a big game winning shot. And I look at the media, and I'm saying all media, and I look at where we get placed, and I just kind of go, eh, that's not really fair. Um, and, you know, if people interpret that as, no, you're talking about the Colts, no, I, that enters into it. I respect the Colts. They're the NFL. I mean, that's... That's the beast. That's the elephant in the room. And they play once a week. They get major coverage. There's a lot of stuff to deal with that. I'm fine with that. I get that. I just want... Like I said, I don't expect equal treatment. I just want it to be be fair that, you know, when you tune into a sportscast or look at a website or whatever and see that you know you're like the fifth story i don't get it after maybe a big win after maybe a big win after a big loss you can do whatever you want <laughs> put it on the back page but yeah but on a but on a big win no i don't i don't care but that's you know the one thing i'd like to see i'd like to see the nba institute a rule that every team gets a national tv game not nba tv but espn or tnt at least twice okay because uh, i think it's not one home, one away. Type I don't thing? care. I it can be either or. But you know, obviously, we got one game. It's against Oklahoma City. Oh, okay, that's cool. But kind of look at the, you know, and I know that they gotta they gotta sell this stuff and they gotta prepackage it all. But maybe leave a couple open dates late in the season, to where you sit there and and you go. Oh, you know, the Pacers are kind of an interesting team. They're better than we thought. We should slot them in for their game, say, against, you know, Houston or um, Denver. Uh, you know, something along those lines. Look at, you know, Orlando got off to a good start, which was a surprise. And you sit there and you go, oh, well, maybe should probably look at something with Orlando. I just think every team should be on twice, at least. Um, you know, some teams aren't on at all. And I don't get that. And 
I, I understand. We know, Ray, and we know ratings. Golden State every game yeah, has I mean, to be on national well, TV to I, an extent. And and that enters into it too because so many games are double headers. So your Western teams are going to get more exposure than your mm-hmm. Eastern teams just because they fit into the time slot. Yeah. And and there's ratings and there's advertising to sell, and it's a superstar marketed league, which I get. I mean, LeBron, you know, LeBron James is a big deal. Steph Curry is a big deal. But I think it, there's comes a point where you got to sit there and look at it. You make these presumptions in July when you make out the schedule and you make out the television schedule that this is these are the teams that are going to get the coverage. Injuries happen. And surprises then injury, happen. Injuries happen, but then all of a sudden you sit there and you go, you know, I don't know how many times Milwaukee's on, but, I mean, yeah. to me, that guy's worth watching on television. Philadelphia, you know, when they played the Pacers, I go, holy crap, these guys are good. You know, but Philadelphia's been down. I mean, New York's going to get on because of New York. Um, and having said that, I just think that there's a f- more equitable way to do that. Would you have a preference playing Christmas Day, Thanksgivings, or not? Because I don't. Okay, it doesn't matter. Either. No, I we played it's on. It's good exposure, but at the same time, it, it also requires everyone around this building to work. Yeah, we we played on Christmas, and it was it was enjoyable to have the notoriety of doing it. We used to play on Thanksgiving all the time, and then play the next night. And it became a unique, unique feature for the franchise. But I understand you're putting out a lot of workers, families, that type of thing. But you know it happens, and and it's part of your job. And you just like I said, the Christmas Day thing. I always thought that you know we might get a game sooner or later, but apparently it's going to be later. I was surprised during those Eastern Conference Finals yeah. runs. That you guys weren't yeah, on yeah, each year. It was now I get and, it, but and I back then no. And you know my again all my, my immediate family. You know the kids are grown, so Christmas isn't that big of a deal anymore. So it doesn't matter to me, but it matters to a lot of other people a whole lot more that have families and want to spend the time together over the holidays. I get that and understand it. So I'm fine both ways. Personally, yeah, I'd love to play on Christmas and Thanksgiving. I wouldn't yeah except that ruins my afternoon nap (laughs) so i'll pass david i appreciate you taking the time sitting down with me i I, this is why i like podcasts is people get to know a little bit about you behind the scenes other than oh you're the guy standing next to uh i was gonna say jeff t you're the the guy standing next to victor oladipo yeah well i appreciate it and like i said hopefully people won't tune out after you know 35 40 seconds That's David Benner coming to you from the St. Vincent Center in downtown Indianapolis. This has been the Vigilant Sports Spacers Podcast. I'll talk to you again next week.